In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so for those of you who know, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of history. I love history. I love studying and learning about history to the point where it just annoys my wife most of the time. Um, oftentimes when we go, we went back to the States for a few weeks previously, we would always take our kids on kind of our history of my hometown to the point of annoyance, I think, with my kids. We'd be driving down the road and say, hey, that's where I took your mom on our first date. Hey, that's where my, me and your mom used to, used to live when we got married. Hey, that's where me and me and your moms went to, went, to, went to university to the point where our kids just go, dad, I don't even care anymore, right? Very, very lovingly, you know, but, but I love history. So, um, so I always tend to grasp and, 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 and reach and look for reference of what's happened in the past to maybe make sense of what's happening in the future. And, and, and so my love of history, uh, growing up in the States, um, we study not a very long history, only about 200 plus years of history. But I, I started to, to, to um, study the life of a man named Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's my favorite of all the U.S. presidents. I can tell you a number of reasons why. But one of the stories of Abraham Lincoln, I think, profoundly uh, mirrors what we are learning about in our Backward Kingdom study, in our Backward Kingdom series. And it goes like this. During the U.S. Civil War, Abraham Lincoln met with a group of ministers for a prayer breakfast. Lincoln was not a churchgoer, but was a man of deep, if at times unorthodox, faith. At one point, one of the ministers in this meeting said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. Lincoln's response showed greater insight. He says, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. You see, Lincoln reminded those ministers that religion is not a tool by which we get God to do what we want, but it's an invitation to open ourselves to being and doing what God wants. And you see, whenever you start to read through the Gospels, whenever you start to read through these accounts of Jesus' ministry here on earth, you see that very same conflict in that you have these people known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the religious leaders of the time coming into conflict with Jesus because they had these preconceived notions of what God's kingdom on earth would look like. And whenever Jesus teaches things contrary to this, they choose to correct or say that's not right and then what they don't realize is that they are standing face to face with God himself saying, you're not right. You're not doing these things that I expected you to do. And I think if all of us maybe got a little bit honest in this place today, we would all say, I've kind of had that encounter with Jesus too. Different seasons, circumstances, events happen in your life. You're like, that's not what's supposed to happen. That's not how this works, God. But God, in his loving kindness, will interact with us even in those moments. Sometimes Jesus' words were not always the, the hippy-dippy kindness words. He often brought sharp words of rebuke to the people who were charged with responsibility and leadership for his people. But he always interacted with them in those moments, didn't he? So what we have seen and discovered through this, this series is that so often Jesus' kingdom 
is completely upside down and backwards to what we oftentimes think the kingdom of God should look like or can look like. And so we've looked at these different precepts or practices or principles that that Jesus lays out throughout the, the accounts of the gospel to show us what his kingdom can tangibly look like on earth. And we see the first week we talked about how the first principle of his backward kingdom is to not place the king first, but to place the people first. And Jesus gives us that opportunity, literally through the accounts of the gospel, to show us how he placed other people first. And it's because, like a good parent, Jesus recognized that his kids will mirror what he models for them, right? So parents, let that sink in for a second. Your kids will mirror what you model for them. So oftentimes, I'll tell you, your kids are a great spiritual mirror. So the times that I see my kids being rude and sharp-tongued with each other are usually times I need to check my spirit and say, whoa, 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 how have I been modeling, what have I been modeling to my kids? Or whenever I see my kids not willing to engage in a generous lifestyle, it makes me start to say, have I not been modeling that enough for them? Because the kids are only going to reflect what you teach them, parents. And you've been charged by God to help train up little bitty, soon-to-be-bigger, life-growing, experiencing world changers. So what Jesus did is he mirrored that for us. Or I'm sorry, he modeled that for us so that we could reflect that back into the world. And his kingdom starts with placing other people first and placing the, 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 the needs of other people above our own. The second thing we saw is that It is a kingdom of celebration despite circumstances. And we talked last week, we looked at three different stories that Jesus taught people. And each of those different different stories, whether it be the the shepherd chasing after the lost sheep, the woman chasing and hunting down the lost coin, or, or the father looking for his lost son, all ended with celebration. Kingdom of heaven, Jesus' backwards kingdom, is a kingdom that celebrates despite circumstances. Despite circumstances. And so today, we're looking at another thing. And Jesus' backward kingdom is a kingdom that compels people to come in. Compels people to come in. And we'll see that through, kind of uh, illustrated through a really, really unique And I think intentional story that Jesus used. You know, Jesus never taught stories by accident. There was always an intent, a purpose behind what he had to say. And so whenever Jesus uses an example like we're going to look at today, number one, you should learn from it. But number two, start to ask the Lord, why did you, there's got to be a reason why you use this particular personification of a quality, of of, 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 of of a trait, to, to, to show your truth. Why is that? Well, I think this, this, this particular story we're going to look at in Luke chapter 14 gives a perfect illustration of that. And I think there's, it's very, very much an on-purpose personification of his kingdom. It's Luke chapter 14. We're going to start 
and verse 12, and then kind of work our way through towards the end of that chapter today. If you recall, last week we were in Luke 15, so we've jumped backwards just a little bit by a, by a, by a chapter, but we're still along the same lines of Jesus laying out what his backward kingdom is. If you will, Luke chapter 14, verse 12 through 24. You, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 12. Follow along with me. It says, Then he, that's Jesus, turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. And then this is where he starts to, to give an example of what his kingdom looks like. And again, there's an intentionality behind using this particular story to illustrate his kingdom. It's this, verse 15. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of, of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what, had, what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Invite the poor, cripple the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There's still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges. Urge anyone you can to find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my kingdom. So this is a, there's a couple things that we could kind of unpack and, and look at here. But the first is that he's obviously giving, a, 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 I think the, the, the story that he tells here is very telling. Number one, in that it's a little bit of a rib or a little bit of a story of, of look, I... I started my ministry and invited the Jews, God's people, to be a part of my kingdom. And if you know the story of the gospel, you know that the majority of the Jews ultimately walked away from him. And the Jewish leaders were the ones that, that were responsible for his arrest and crucifixion. And so then, as the story of the New Testament unfolds, and as we learn the story, you know that the, the kingdom of God eventually expands to the Gentiles, right? The people who are not Jewish. And thank the Lord that it did, or else all of us in this room would have been excluded from the gospel, right? But that's part of it. Number, the second part of it is it, it, it's a story that speaks to us today. And I think there's, there's about four things that we can see from this and then from another story just, just after this that, that, that we can unpack and apply to our lives today. First one is this. The first one we see in this story is that all people are invited to Jesus' backwards kingdom. All people 
It's not an exclusive invitation. It's not an invitation that excludes anyone based on race, creed, color, language, socioeconomic status, education. Jesus invites all people to his table. When was the last time you invited people to your table that didn't look, smell, talk the same as you? See, the invitation to God's kingdom is sent out through his servant. So he says, go. And then in other translations, it says, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. And so until Jesus, is, Jesus comes back, here's the assumption that you need to make. You ready? The banquet hall is not full yet. While we are still here on earth, while Jesus has not come back into this world, we can assume that his banquet hall is not full and that there's still work to be done. And there's still people that should be compelled to come back into his, his banquet. Now look, some will throw away their invitation and go off to look at their real estate. Or go look at their cattle. Or, or, or hang out with their spouse or whatever their excuse is. But that could not and should not stop you. Find the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame and beat the hedges. Look under bridges. God will have his banquet hall full. He will. And it's very, I think, telling that he uses the example of a banquet, isn't it? Because that leads to the next point. Is that Jesus' backwards kingdom was designed to be experienced with other people. Jesus' backward kingdom was designed for you and I to experience something together. To be going through this process that the Bible calls sanctification or being transformed from who you used to be into who God wants you to be. And God doesn't want you to walk that out by yourself. You can't walk that out by yourself. If you could, Jesus didn't have to die for you. Your faith is personal, but it's never supposed to be private. Your faith is personal, but it's never intended. It was never designed. God never wants it to be something that you just keep inside you and keep to yourself. But too often we tend to think, well, if, if I start to, to share about my faith with other people, it could make them uncomfortable. Probably. But since when... Has Jesus ever said, I've come so that all people could be as comfortable and, as possible, right? If Jesus said that, he obviously wasn't talking about Hong Kong in the summer, right? Because just going from our, our flat door to the lift lobby gets you uncomfortable because it's an instant like 15 degrees in temperature raise and 75% humidity raise just waiting for the lift. That's not comfortable, We've bought into the lie that the goal of life is to try to get as comfortable as possible. Therefore, I'm just going to keep all these really important things to me so that other people don't know about it. Your faith is personal, but it's never supposed to be private. 
want you to think back on some of the best memories of your life you've ever had. And as we, as we end, after we end today, this will be a good thing for you to reflect on, okay? We're going to have a time of reflection to kind of end today, but that'll be in just a minute. I want you to think about on some of the, the greatest memories you've ever had. Chances are, some of them could be your experience of, of solitude or aloneness, right? You, you, for me, one of my greatest memories happened last, last, or this April, whenever I went on my little trip to Barcelona, and one morning I woke up early, early because of jet lag and, and got on my bike and froze myself riding in two degrees uh, temperatures to, to summit a mountain right at sunrise because it looked out over the ocean. It was just one of the most amazing experiences in my life. But that's, that, that's, that moment, that memory of solitude is one of the very, very few outliers of great memories of my life that have involved just me. Chances are for the majority of you in your life, the majority of the greatest memories you have in your life are from experiences or moments with other people around you. I remember the moment that I stopped viewing Hong Kong as a tourist and started viewing it as someone who felt connected here. And it didn't happen when I was getting on the Star Ferry by myself. The second time we ever came here, my wife, you know, our story goes, my wife and I were married 15 years ago this summer, by the way. You can hold your applause till the end, okay? Um, Actually, you can applause that right now. I think we should celebrate me. Okay, celebrate me. Thank you, thank you. I'm very good. No, um, yeah, we're celebrating my wife more than me. Those are directed to Mrs. D. Very smart. Yes, she, that's right. We've had a few good months here and there in 15 years, you know. Um, but, but we would come back and visit family um, every year, every other year. I don't remember how many times we came. But anyways, I remember the second time we ever came here. We were having dinner with some of your parents' friends. And I remember in the course of that meal... Carol gracefully and thoughtfully saying, look, if you want to stop being treated like a tourist, which, you know, basically means everybody's just giving you stuff and handing you things and not letting you decide what you want, right? She said, you need to start serving other people, right? And so during the course, I remember very clearly in the course of one meal that we had with, at the beginning of the meal, his name was Mr. Lee, Right? He was my, my, one of my father-in-law's very good friends. And through the course of the meal, me saying, all right, I'm tired of being the center of the attention at every meal and then waiting to see if I eat something and I like it or if I spit it out secretly. I'm going to be the guy who just starts to serve everybody else. And if somebody else's wine glass gets low, I'm going to be the one that pours the wine to them. Or if their tea glass gets low, I'm going to pour, I'm going to give them food. And I remember in the course of one meal, sitting down and, and, and starting a meal with Mr. Lee and ending the meal with Uncle Lee. Because through, through, the, through the course of that meal and sharing that experience with other people, I connected with people. And by the end of the meal, he said, don't call me Mr. Lee anymore. You have to call me Uncle Lee now, Right? And it's because I had this, I shared this experience with other people. 
God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, was designed to be experienced with other people. And that's something we take extremely seriously at this, at this church. We believe it. We live it. We breathe it. If you were looking for a church where you can come and just sit and hide, you've picked the wrong church. Right? There's not a lot of places to hide in this room, is there? There's not a lot, and, and greater than that, there's not a lot of people in our community that are going to let you hide. We want this to be a church where the moment you walk in the door, you know, I'm seen. You know, one of the names for God in the Old Testament is El Rai. Look at your neighbor say, El Rai. Now look at the other person say the same thing. El Rai. You just learned Hebrew today. El Rai means the God who sees me. We serve a God. We belong to a God who sees us. So we should be a church that lets people know, I see you. We take that seriously. We've got one more week of, of, of a backwards kingdom teaching this next week. And then after that, we're going to spend six weeks talking about the idea of community. Talking about what it looks like to have a proper, healthy, spiritual community. And how that plays itself out through the life of our church. We'll tell you more about that as we come along. But Jesus' backwards kingdom was designed to be experienced with other people. And you know, not only just personally, I have these experiences of remembering that moment with Uncle Lee. But, but I think back on some of the greatest memories I've ever had in the history of this church involve literally living out this story. Some of you may not know the history of our church. A lot of, there was a season in the life of our church, and it may be that God's bringing it back to us, but I don't know. But there was a season of the life of our church for, I think, three years. Three years right around Christmas every single year. What we would do is we would host a banquet for anyone and everyone in our community to come, enjoy a free meal, enjoy that experience of the table together, and then we would organize entertainment, we'd organize gifts, we'd organize prizes, we'd organize entertainment. I mean, we had like former Miss Hong Kongs coming to speak. I don't know how we pulled these things off, but we did. But it all started because we would go and visit these little bitty squatters' villages and low-income housing units all peppered throughout Sha Tin and Fotan. And we would go and we would sweat and we'd get eaten up by mosquitoes, get chased by dogs, all, you know, just all these crazy stories. But we literally were living out this story. And there's some of you in this, in this room today that were still a part of that season. And those were amazing, amazing days. And I just, I have to wonder if God is starting to call us into a new season of reaching out to our neighbors, what, it, what that looks like, how that expresses itself, right? I love the fact, and, and just so you know, like, those things weren't cheap. I don't know if you've ever had to put on a banquet in Hong Kong. They're not exactly spare change events. Right? But because of your sacrifice, because of your faithfulness, because of the people in this church's obedience 
to God, we were able to have the resources to do these things. You're part of a church that has given over a million dollars into the community over the past five years. And that may not sound significant or, or a lot to, to most, uh, maybe a lot of other bigger churches in the city, but when you consider the total amount given for our church just last year, that's a significant amount of money. I love the fact that whenever I give to this church, I'm not just giving to New Heights, I'm giving through New Heights. Do you hear the difference to that? means almost every single dollar that you give when you give to this church is expressly designed for community transformation. It's the reason why we're here at this school. There's a reason why we meet at this school. It was a whole lot more convenient on a week-by-week basis for us to stay at a permanent venue. But I have to tell you, as a pastor... And we had great landlords, and I've built a very, and I continue to have a good relationship with our former landlords. And I, I pray for them, and I let them know I'm praying for them, and we've had a lot of spiritual conversations over the years. But it bothered me every single month when I'd have to write a check for rent at our old permanent facility where you just have to walk in and flip on a switch and you're ready to go for church on a Sunday. It bothered me that every month when I would write a check, that check went towards the profit margins of yet another real estate developer in this city. And if you're a real estate developer in this city, I love you, okay? I do. But what I love even more than that is every quarter when, we, I mean, when our church pays for the usage of this school's facilities, I know that it's, not, it's going to make this school a better place for the 900-plus families that call ICS home. Now, you tell me which is the best use of resources, right? Every Almost every single dollar that is given to New Heights Church is redirected towards community transformation. We've been able throughout the years to, like I said, offer love banquets to people. We've, we've offered back-to-school backpack drives for low-income in, low children. We've partnered with local churches to help connect these people that... that I couldn't even have a conversation with because I don't know enough Mandarin. They were Mandarin speakers right? Or Cantonese speakers, that, that we would help connect with local churches so that we could see them on throughout their spiritual journey. We go out and we buy oil and rice and pears and towels and tangible things to show a community. There's a church that cares about you. And through that, God, started, God has brought throughout the years different opportunities for us to bless and help change and transform a community. We've offered free tutoring classes for kids, and we've seen, I think there's a few of you in this, class, in this room who are a product of that tutoring program, who, who, who God has changed your life because of it, whether it be you're volunteering or you're attending. We've seen a number of the kids who are a part of that program come to know Christ. We've offered free DSE prep classes for local kids, which is a big deal. Whether or not we like it or the system or not, we're going to be able to minister and reach people where they are. And it's because we think that God wants us to experience his kingdom with other people, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey. So know that whenever you give of your tithes and your offerings to New Heights Church, it doesn't just go to New Heights Church. It goes through New Heights Church all throughout this city. But it's never designed 
for you to experience by yourself. The third thing we see from this, this story is Jesus' backwards kingdom. In order for you to fully experience his kingdom, what you've got to do is prepare your stomach for the real meal. Prepare your stomach for the real meal. You know, we've seen that the invitation goes out indiscriminately to all throughout this, this, this story. But then in verse 25, people start to respond, right? Let's look at verses 25 through 33 of Luke 14. Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. So it says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's a person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. And in verse 33, so you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. See, basically what Jesus is saying in effect is that in order to enjoy the table of God, in order to enjoy the banquet that I just talked about, you've got to stop stuffing yourself with local cuisine. Maybe another way to put it is this. If you know that tonight you're going to go and have a hotel buffet with your family in Chimsa Choi or wherever you choose to be your hotel buffet of choice, you're not going to eat a huge full English breakfast and then a large loaf of bread sandwich for lunch, right? Because by the time you get to the hotel buffet, you're not going to have any room. I remember, I think, the same trip where I, I, I became nephew Lee, or I became, he, know, he became known as Uncle Lee. We went to a hotel buffet for lunch. It was at the Intercontinental in East TST, right? And so Carol's like, I don't care. Just tell your story, all right? But anyways, we, we sat down, and, and, and like, hotel buffet culture in, in Hong Kong is completely different than what I was used to. So I started off thinking I was doing the responsible thing, and I got a plate. I made a salad, right? I probably should eat more salads in my life. But I sat down, and I started eating my salad, and I got to the table first. And so then Carol sits down, and the rest of her family sits down, and they all just look at me like, what are you doing? And Carol's like, why are you getting a salad? I was like, well, it was there. It was the first thing I saw. She's like, no, 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 no. She's like, Brad, that's not how it works, okay? She's like, you don't get a salad. She's like, you go straight to the prime rib. 
you get the meat, you then you get more meat, and then you get the cheese, and then you get all the expensive stuff. She's like, we're going to be here for a while. Buckle up, you know. This is something that's going to take a while. And it was true. At one point, my mother-in-law, whom I love and I am so grateful for, got to the point where she was full. So you know what she did? She got up from the table, put her napkin in her chair, walked outside and took a walk around the block so that she could make more room and then came back down and ate some more food because she wanted to experience the entire banquet, right? But how many of you are filling your life full of so much just junk food, junk artificial stuff that that by the time Jesus is calling you to the banquet, you say, no, 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 I'm just full. What Jesus is saying is that in order to enjoy the table of God, you've got to stop stuffing yourself with the local cuisine. Stop filling your life up with salad and have a seat. Nutritionists who who are here today are going to really, really consider whether or not this is their church after today, okay? No, but stop filling it. You get what I'm saying. Stop filling up your life with things that just just sit there and, and take up the space that God wants to fill in your life. Stop filling your life up with junk food and make room for the real banquet food. The invitation to come to the banquet is for all. But the requirement is that you're more hungry for what God serves than what the world serves. More hungry for God than for mother or father or spouse or child or siblings or even your own life. Anybody who comes to the feast of God with a candy bar in his back pocket will be turned away. He who does not renounce his own life will not be my disciple. The taste buds of your soul must be born again. So what do we see in this story? Number one, we see that all are invited to Jesus' kingdom. But it was designed... To be experienced by other people. And that you've got to prepare your stomach for the real meal. So what are, what are two ways, so the, the, what are two practical ways to live this out? What are two practical ways to live it out? I think it's easy. I think there's two things. It's easy to say, but this is where I want you to begin to start to transition into the, the contemplation part of the day. The introspection, the, 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 the thinking upon these things. Are you ready? Here's the first thing. Here's the practical way to live this story out. Number one, the first thing is this. Invite people to your table. Invite people to your table. And what I mean by that is who are you inviting into your life to share this experience of your transformation and sanctification with? We're going to begin to talk. This is going to be a major theme. We're going to spend six weeks in just a few weeks talking about this. What does it look like? How do you do this? How, what, practically, what are some ways that you can invite people to your table? 
Second thing is this. Invite people to our table. And what I mean by that is invite people to be a part of what we experience together as a larger church body. So two practical ways are you invite people to share what you're personally experiencing at your sphere of influence in your circle of life. Whether that literally means to have people over to your house every other Tuesday to pray and intercede for this city like the Boons do. Or to have people to come over to your home on Friday nights like we're about to start doing at the end of September for our discovery course where you get to discover the why of Hong Kong. We're, my, my family and I, we're going to open our home and, and, and invite people to share a meal, share our stories, and talk about the why of, of New Heights. We'll talk more about that more next week. But if you want to be a part of our first discovery group of the fall, there's sign-ups over here right next to our offering table where you can put your name and your phone number and your email and say, I want to know the why of New Heights. And the why of New Heights begins at the table. And so we're going to learn as a church and walk through as a church what it means to intentionally go out and invite people to the banquet. And invite people to, our, to, to my table and invite people to our table. Because I'm convinced that's what the next movement of God is going to use. You know, when I, I think I've told this story before. When I was in seminary, I took, the, I took a course on, on the spiritual foundations of church growth, right? Taught by Dr. Elmer Towns. Dr. Elmer, we had to read 14 books throughout the course of this. At that point, it was an eight-week course. Dr. Elmer Towns wrote 13 of the 14 books that we read, all right? Not that there was a little bit of entrepreneurship in there. But anyways, one of the things that Dr. Towns pointed out throughout this course is that if you look within the context of the U.S. church, he said, if you look at the history of the U.S. church just from the 1950s to at that point it was 2008, right? He said, if you look throughout the different decades, God put his hand on different elements of the church to use it to grow and bless his church. He's like, you look at the 1950s and the 1960s, what God used through his church to grow his church was the, the concept and the idea of door-to-door evangelism. Walking up to people's homes throughout na- random neighborhoods, knocking on the door and saying, there's a God that loves you and he wants to share things with you and he wants to transform you. And that grew his church. Then throughout this, that was in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, God put his hand on what was known as a bus ministry throughout the local churches in the U.S., where churches would buy buses and drive into low-income housing estates and fill these buses up with families and kids and drive them to the church and then give and, and provide them with an opportunity to know him. And his church was grown throughout that particular ministry in the 70s and the 80s. And he says, what I see now in the 90s and the 2000s is that God is using praise and worship to grow his church. And I think if all of us kind of take a step back, we can see that. We see movements like Hillsong. We see movements like Bethel. Whether or not you agree with all of their theology is one thing and their methods is another thing. But God's using their music to grow and, and advance his church. Now, I'm no Elmer Towns and I haven't written up, I think now he's up to like 28 books, Okay. But I think what I believe, what I see when I look at today's world is the next thing that God is going to put his hand on to grow his church is the concept of community and, and, a, and a, an intentional gospel hospitality in his church. And if I have my way, that's what I want our church to be known as. 
We're that church that they just, that they value hospitality and they value the table. And so we're going to begin to talk about the table more. But that's, these are two practical things that you can do in your life to live out these three principles. And that's invite people to your table and invite people to our table. So maybe the two questions that you need to begin asking yourself today as we kind of enter into a time of reflection is, who do I need to invite to my table? And maybe you're, you're, the, what you're thinking right now is like, Pastor Brad, I don't think you understand. I don't have any space to invite people to my table. I don't have a big enough table. I don't have a big enough dining room. I don't have enough hours in the day. Well, maybe you need to start there. Right? There's that principle. If you always find time and you'll always find money for the things you think are important to you. So maybe what God is calling you to do first is reevaluate what your priorities are right now. Maybe he's calling you to sacrifice a couple things for the benefit of other people. Who do I need to invite to my table? And then, who do I need to invite to our table? And we try to make it as easy as we can. We try to give you every tool you need. We even print up invitation cards that you can take and give to people and say, hey, come sit with me at church. In fact, creatively, the card says, sit with me on the front. You don't even have to talk to the person. You'd be like, hey, Tony. And it says, sit with me on the front. And on the back, it gives them directions to our church. Please talk to your friends and not just blindly hand out cards like the ladies who stand in front of the MTR station. Okay, handing out like education center flyers or whatever they're, they're trying to give my kids. Okay, I think we could build like, I don't know what we could build. We could build an entire forest with the number of flyers that, that have been given to us over the years. But we have invitation cards right next to our, our, our right next to discovery signups. Grab one or two this week. As God starts to, in a moment, give you names of people that you know that you need to invite to our table, take a card. Number one, it's a tangible reminder of that person's name. Number two, It just practically it gives them directions to our church. So what I want to do, and I want to, I want to, I want to point one last thing out to you, and then we're going to enter into a time of reflection. You know, you may not be able to play guitar. You may not be able to sing. First of all, Psalms doesn't say make a a harmonious noise to the Lord, does it? It just says make a joyful noise, right? But second of all, you may not be able to, to, to play guitar. You may not be able to sing. You may not be able to, to, to lead kids' church. You may not be able to, to, to do all these talented things. You may not be able to preach, you think. You may not be able to set up. You may not be able to tear down. But all of us can extend an invitation to the table. All of us have people in our lives that don't know Jesus, that aren't connected to a healthy spiritual community, or both, that need to be a part of what God is doing in and among and through us. 
All right? All of us can extend an invitation. And then think about, let's, let's, let's circle all the way back to the beginning, thinking back to this story. Who was it that filled the master's banquet hall? It was the servant. The servants were the ones that were charged with and responsible for filling the banquet hall. And as long as Jesus doesn't return to this earth, that means there's space at the table for somebody. And that means there's people in your life that God wants you to invite to the table. Who that is, I can't answer that for you today. But God can and God wants to. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd just like you to bow your head and I'd like you to close your eyes. As we move to a reflection time, a time where God and you can do a little bit of business together, I want you to ask God these two questions. God, who is it that you were calling me to invite to my table, to reach out to, to spend time with, to invest in? And then God, who are you calling me to invite to our table? Who are some people in my life that are not a part of a spiritual community? But I know we're searching. And you may not even know their name. You may just know a face. Start to pray for that person. And after we leave today, and after you go and you sign up for Discovery, if you've not been part of it, grab a, grab a card and commit that card and pray over that card and say, God, I pray for this person. Give me opportunities to invite them this week. And we even have digital versions of it on our website, so you can WhatsApp it to them. Just begin to ask God those questions and make space to hear his response. And then maybe what you need to do is, is, and what I'd encourage you to do is to write it down, whether it be just email yourself a note, write their name in the margin of Luke 14, use the handy-dandy notes app that you're super excited about but hardly ever use. Studies show if you write something down, you're more likely to remember it and apply it. So ask yourself those questions as we, as we kind of reflect on the word that God's just shown us. And then I'll come back in a few moments and, and we'll close out. If you need prayer, if, you need to, if there's some things that you're struggling with that you need to prayer over, prayer through, then I'll be up at the front as well. I'll be more, that's why I'm here. I flew halfway around the world seven years ago to help you pray through this moment right now. It's not an accident that you're dealing with it right now and that you're here. I'll be, it's an honor for me to pray with you. So this is a time of, of, of 
ministry, where the Holy Spirit can minister to you and where you can minister to the body as well. We'll have some, some, some music just quietly playing in the background and then allow this time to be for you and God to do what God needs to do in your life.